You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Half hour. Welcome to Half Hour with Jeff and Richie. I'm Richie. And I'm Jeff. And on today's show, we welcome Mona Pernod. Mona is a New York City-based playwright and songwriter, currently a member of EST Youngblood. Her works have been featured at prestigious theaters such as Playwrights Horizons, New York Theater Workshop, and Ensemble Studio Theater. She's received recognition as the winner of the 2022 Irwin Lee and Brown Playwrights Award and is a nominee for the 2023 Helen Hayes Charles MacArthur Award for Outstanding New Player Musical for her acclaimed work private. With a diverse portfolio of productions and accolades, Mona continues to make a significant impact in the world of theater. And she is currently representative of the New York Theater Workshop with her play, I Love You So Much, I Could Die. Mona, welcome to Half Hour. Thank you for having me. Yes. Mona, it's so great to have you on the show. And before we get into your current work, we wanted to start out with having you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and how you got started as a playwright and songwriter. Sure. I mean, I started playing guitar at 10. I wanted to play earlier, but my hands weren't big enough. Okay. So my mom finally bought me a little parlor guitar, <laughs> and I started taking lessons from this awesome hippie named Ishmael Katz. And um, I then started writing my own music around 13. and. Um, at the same time, too, I was doing like children's theater and I started off as an actor. I think for a lot of playwrights, um, when we're growing up, we know we want to be involved in theater, but the only role models we have are actors. So a lot of us begin performing. Um, and then when I got into college, I met my first playwriting mentor who changed my life, a playwright named Edith Brenny. And I sort of crafted, I went to University of Miami. They didn't have a playwriting program, but together we crafted one and mm. made a bunch of practicums. And I took every writing class I could. And the school ended up producing uh, one of my plays in their season, which to this day is probably like the highest I'll ever feel. <laughs> you know, like I'm now having my off-Broadway premiere, but the day that the director of the program was like, we're doing your play, I was pinching myself thinking, you know, this just this isn't happening. Um so yeah, that's sort of how I came into playwriting. Um, yeah, through college. But as a kid, I always wrote little Christmas plays and things like that. I love hearing the stories like that. And yeah. we know your husband, Lucas Nath, is Tony Award nominee. He's directed this, I, I Love You So Much I Could Die. And I would love to know a little bit more about your inspiration. Of, of course, this is a very personal piece, but how you worked with Lucas on this together. Was there was the process that you wrote it first and he came on board or did you work together with him throughout it? Just a little bit of backstory on that. Yeah, I mean, we we sort of workshopped it in our apartment. I wrote the stories in 2020 and 2021, and this was pre-vaccine before people were gathering. And our apartment setup is such that my desk faces the wall in our bedroom and our bed is behind. And so I would write these stories because as I 
come to explain briefly in the play, um, the fragmented stories ended up being the way that I could express the the larger, enormous story as opposed to this explicit recounting of every excruciating thing that happened. So I would just write these stories and bits and pieces and um, I would play the stories for him and he would sit behind me and my back would be to him. And sometimes I'd play him a song and then eventually, and you know, he would respond with which stories really moved him or did something to him. And he's got a brilliant dramaturgical brain. So together we very much shaped which stories in which order, in which ones didn't make it in at all. And then we moved from the bedroom out into the living room. We moved our couch around. We did a kind of workshop, just the two of us. And um, and then we started getting workshops elsewhere in kind of bigger and bigger test audiences. But we kept the integrity of what it was like building it together in our apartment. That's really cool. One of the biggest yeah. things like that I felt was super cool is you had these stories and then you also had the songs that kind of went with them. Which do you feel like, and how did this process work for you? But did you write the stories first and then the song or the song mm-hmm. first and then the story? Well, the final song in the play is the only one that I wrote many years ago. I wrote that one in college. Everything else was written um, around the same time in 2020 and 2021. And I, I think I probably wrote the songs first. And, uh, and then I wrote the stories and I decided which ones, uh, made sense with the songs and, but the songs came first. Most of the songs were 2020. That's really, I love that. I love that. And, and when you're writing a piece like this, I want to, I were, I want to go into a little bit of some of the setup of this. So you're facing away from the audience. And at the beginning of that, I'm like, oh, this is a cool choice. And I like this. And then I'm realizing, wow, this is going to be the whole piece. And, and I'm just, and you know what? I'm so, as an audience, I think we're so reliant sometimes, or maybe too reliant sometimes on facial expression or physicality. And it, this was such an audio piece just to listen to words that were coming from the computer and then songs coming from you. How does it feel night after night to not be facing, you know, all these people behind you? And were you nervous with that choice in the beginning? Mm-hmm. And does it work better now that you've been doing it for a while? I just want to talk about that choice a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it's very disorienting to do the show. I have no visual information. I stare at that brick wall. Sometimes I know that a couple of friends are there and I just focus on them and I think about them and I imagine them. Um, I have an in-ear monitor so that I can hear the sound mix from my vocals and guitar. So that also is sort of like having one noise canceling headphone because when I'm not hearing my mix, I'm hearing white noise that cancels out an entire field of audio. But I can hear laughs. I can hear crying sometimes. Wow. I can hear, um, I can hear. <laughs> I've heard people walk out. LOL. Oh I my mean, gosh! Wow. Uh, wow. I one time, I one time heard someone go, "Jesus Christ!" and then chuff and leave. And oh, I, my no. task, yeah, my task is just to sit there very still. But you know, which kind of transitions into the choice of doing it with my back to the audience. I mean, um, it's such a demanding thing for audiences to see but the play teaches you how to watch it and the play hopefully comes to take care of the audience in the way that if i were the audience i would want to know um how to watch it and i think that the decision to turn away 
my aim was to create space for people to have their own meditative experience about their own life and their own experience where they're not looking to my face for visual cues of how I'm doing these days or how it feels for me to be listening to these stories about my own life night after night. And it's kind of, um, we call it something like a concert, something like a play. And I think it's also something like a meditation where for the first five minutes, I'm sure the audience is like, is this really what it's going to be? Is it really this voice? Is she really turning away? And then hopefully in the way that you relax into meditation, the audience transcends the feeling of uncomfortability. And it's like, this is what it is. Let's walk on the balance beam together. That's, that's a big word that Richie and I feel like we both love is like that uncomfortability that is sometimes brought in by different playwrights and directors. And this one I thought was super cool because you have this whole text to speech character in this play now. And where do you feel like that came in the whole creative process of this and using the text to speech in the show? Yeah, well, I had used Lucas and I have both used text to speech tools just to hear our work read aloud to us, even pre pandemic. And we've always been tickled by them because they're not emotive and they're good with rhythm. And I think also you have maximum control. So, you know, David is reading this document live, but I have scored it so meticulously like a piece of music. And I score mm -hmm. it with commas and periods and colons and repetition and space. And um, so it was very therapeutic for me early on after being thrust into this uncontrollable collision of personal and global crises to then have maximum control of the way that I was talking about it and mm -hmm. scoring this voice. Yeah, that really stood out to me because I feel like we do use text-to-speech so much like in our daily yeah. lives now too. And yeah. I've never heard it done in that way where you were able to score the speech where it was like having like almost the dramatic pauses or like the almost like robotic um, mess ups. You could kind yeah, of yeah. Around, like like the the skipping it felt like at one point that I thought was like wow that's powerful yeah and yeah I, I also feel like there was this juxtaposition in my mind anyway of this robotic monotone-esque narrative with this extremely heartfelt story so it's like this in my brain and then to not see you I understand exactly what you're saying about like it's almost like self-reflective for the audience to be able to sit because there were moments where I was thinking about death in my life or I was thinking about I'm I'm listening to this story and then I'm reflecting on my life but I'm like wait it's but it's not my story it's this it was and it was just I felt like I was this ebb and flow as an audience member that I was with and then it was that then I we were able to hear your voice in the music and the music spoke it was just a wonderful um execution of all of that I, I totally understand what you're thank saying thank you yeah thank you so much. I'm so yeah. glad that you had that experience that's yeah. the intention is for people to fall in and out of my story and their story that's the exact intention totally totally and and I guess that kind of leads into my next question is what was challenging for you to bring on designers, to put this in a space, and then to get audience in, what were some of the challenges you faced? We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, the challenges, I mean, um, the design team was a dream come true. No challenges there. Absolute A team. We also all had this joke. I mean, the workshop finally got Mimi Lee and MacArthur Genius and, you know, it's a blank stage. 
Although, of course, every single choice is very intentional down to the way that the cable snake, you know, the color of the water bottle. I mean, everything is really, really intentional. Um, but so the design team was a dream come true. Um, I guess challenges are I, I knew the piece would probably be polarizing. Um, and it has been. It has been. In a way that I'm pretty proud of, actually, I think it's kind of punk rock, um, but it's it's hard for me sometimes to go on stage and sit there every night with all of the extreme reactions rattling around in my head. But the workshop, it's like my family. I mean, we've been through so much together and we've all created this equilibrium where despite all of the noise, rhapsodic or eviscerating. I get there on stage every night and I feel really safe in that theater. So uh, important. And we're kind of new to the theater workshop, seeing things we, we saw um, a show in the fall and now we're seeing your show and we we're really liking the cool art that they're bringing into this space. And how do you feel like your play is kind of help how it's going to kind of help shape Broadway and off Broadway with doing things differently? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I feel very moved that I'm now on the other side of really familiar territory, which is being the one who looks up to playwrights and directors and theater culture makers and copies them and does my own bad copy of like, you know, say a Will Eno play when I was in college until I found my own voice. And um, I'm really curious how this play is going to affect younger or emerging playwrights. And my hope is that they see it and realize they can do whatever they want, that a play can look like this. And it's amazing to have such an iconic theater like New York Theater Workshop program it and say, not only can you make a play that looks like this, but we will program it. We think people should see it. It's so unconventional. I hope that it inspires people to um, formally experiment in ways I've had a lot of fun with. And, and, Going back to some of you talking about the choices on stage, I'm always I'm always someone who looks at a stage and say, oh, if something's up there, it's someone put it there for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's not just a random, like you said, wire snaking on the floor. I love that. I also mm -hmm. loved that when the show started, um, we barely saw you. Like you came in, I think you come in from yeah. the house, right? And so we don't even really 100% see much of you until we see you sit down. And then mm -hmm. I'm, and, and this is just so like conventional me. I'm like, okay, and the house lights are going to go down now, right? And yes. I'm like, and I'm like, okay, no. And then it did take me a while to realize like, oh, this is a slow 60, 65 minute fade. Yes. And, and, and I don't know if it was 20 or 30 minutes in. I was like, oh, these lights are getting done. It's, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> There's just something so smart about a slow fade like that yeah. to black at the end, which is so beautiful to me. I love the choice. Yeah, me too. That's all Lucas. I mean, Lucas is, um, he is so, I think one of his geniuses is knowing how to make a simple theatrical gesture feel profound and so lucas knew that's what he wanted and una curly our lighting designer executed it so brilliantly i mean it might seem like a simple cue but what they're doing is incredibly sophisticated i mean una and stoli their associate are just like the best that there is because it's uh it takes a lot of work to make something look so simple Totally, totally. And, and when you, and I just love hearing the collaboration 
that you have Lucas and the design team and bringing this all together. And then that you're, you wrote this and I, I understand this is so personal for you, but I guess I another question would be where, what is your advice for new playwrights? People who are trying to, you know, I always run into playwrights and some of them write about nothing that their personal life they write about something completely fiction and some people do write self-reflective works like this and what would you give advice to someone who's trying to start out writing plays and getting them produced in a space like this or in a way like this yeah i mean of course in a way everybody's always writing about themselves because even if it's an obsession that has nothing to do with their life they're writing about the rise and fall of enron you know it's still um it's still indicative of whatever rattles around in their brain otherwise they wouldn't attack that pile of work for i mean it takes me this play the play i did before private i wrote for seven and a half years and the play changed with me and i was really proud of that i don't think i could have had a draft that i was proud of much sooner um and even though that play was less personal the amount of time i poured into it is um it's personal. So I think that I guess the advice I would give to anyone is, um, you know, when you know, when you have this itch to start a play, just make sure that you are obsessed enough with the subject matter and take the research on it seriously. Um, because it's going to take so much of your energy. And with autobiographical or autofiction, I take the observance of my inner life as seriously as I have when I've written plays where I've researched vaccines or privacy law. Yeah. And, and I, I'm speaking about this, you know, this reminds me when we had seen on Broadway, we saw what the constitution means to me and Heidi Schreck had written that. And I I'm still blown away by that whole play. Um, but she performed it. Right. And she wrote, that was her whole life story. Then I saw like later down the road, I think the national tour was someone else playing. Yeah, I thought yeah. I, I was kind of fascinated by that because I thought, of course, yeah. she has to like kind of approve that, but also like, is she part of the casting of that? And how is someone else telling that story? So the question I have for you is, could you ever see this play when this production closes going on with someone else? Or do you feel like this would only be a play that you would perform? Like, how do you feel as a playwright when it's so personal like that, seeing maybe someone else? We'll be right back. Let's jump back into things. It's such a good question, and I think about that too. My impulse is that it probably won't work if it's not me, because part of the tension is that it's really me sitting there listening like you're listening to these stories from my life. But Constitution is a perfect uh, reference point, because I didn't think anyone else could do that except for Heidi. And then, yeah, maybe you saw Maria Dizia or Kathy Beck or any number of amazing actors that have done it. But um, I don't know. That's TBD. But Heidi's a very special friend to me and oh. has been someone I've been leaning on through this because there's a small group of us that um, know the exclusive highs and lows of performing a show that you wrote yourself. So... Yeah, Heidi is very special to me. It's so personal, and and I just love when people tell a story on their own. And I always think like, yeah, what what's next? And so like I always and that that does kind of also lead to what is next for you after this? Do you have other plays in the works? Are you looking to do other things in other spaces? Or what you're allowed to say, I guess now on the podcast, right? I do <laughs> have something coming up, and I don't think I'm allowed to say, but okay. I could not be more excited. Okay. I'm really really excited. It's another. Um, completely strange thing that 
some people will love and some people will be like, is this theater? Um, but so that's coming up. And then I also will be excited to uh, write more music and play more music. I love that. Uh, I yeah. did want to kind of bounce back to one thing you were saying, though. Um, I know you could you want to play this role and maybe don't see someone else playing the role. But how about lending that kind of style to someone else who wants to tell their stories in the same way that you're doing them? Would you be like open to that? Totally. I'm going to be thrilled to see in copies of this play because like I said, we I did it too. We all did it. I mean, I yeah. have my really, really bad attempts at writing Sheila Callahan and Will, you know, when I was like 19 and 20. Um, so I can't wait to see the ways that people learn from this and maybe want to do something like it. Yeah, it's just something that I feel like I can envision someone else doing who is a really great songwriter too, that also has these stories that they've created um with the music and it would just yeah. make sense you know it's a different than like an open mic night where you're just sitting and telling your stories facing everyone it just i think your choice uh, of facing the wall is very different and cool you know that's so interesting yeah maybe there could be some kind of like cabaret where people are invited to to yeah. do that where everyone just sits and faces the wall. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> like at 54 below, it's like the new thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. That's great. We are, we are getting close to the end here. So we did want to add like a big final question here. But how do you want your work as a playwright to shape conversations around important social and cultural issues, such as technology and identity? And what do you hope audiences take away from plays like I Love You So Much I Could Die? Yeah, I mean, I think about the identity and technology question a lot because I'm really interested in avatars. There, there are a long line of both theater artists and other kinds of artists that I've learned from. And I mean, every time someone writes a play, they're putting their ideas into the mouths of other people. And that is working with an avatar. We're just used to seeing it in a certain way. It's called characters and they're in these scenes and that is a living room, you know. And I, I think I have a long project. I'm not sure how many more times I'll do it, but I'm interested to continue in working in autobiographical stuff and avatars. And, um, I guess I can't say what I hope the conversation will be around it because I hope it's surprising. So, you know, with that logic, I, I want to be surprised. I, I don't know what I want people to think. We'll see. <laughs> it's nice that I hear you talk about your work and you're so open to, uh, sometimes we talk to some people and they're like, this is the message and I want people to know this only, you know, and instead you're saying you're so open to people taking what they want from it. Like you said, if people are crying during it, people are relating to you hundred percent or making it their own. That's wonderful about a play. And I think especially something extremely personal, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's just wonderful to hear. And then you see the title too. Like, and, and that was another question I had earlier, where did the title come from? Did that come later on or did you always mm -hmm. want to title it? that? Well, I wrote the song, I love you so much. I could die in 2020 at one of the heights of pain. And, um, 
it was therapeutic to write the song and it felt like a little light at the end of a dark tunnel. And I just held on to it for a while. And I actually was going to call the play a table with just a few things on it because there's a George Saunders quote I love that says a story is not like real life. It's like a table with just a few things on it. Wow. And I had, I can't remember the order of things that I had, but pretty early on, I had an image of like a pretty blank stage with a table, a laptop, a guitar, a chair. So I loved that quote for a few reasons. And I also loved the freedom it gave me to not give an explicit play-by-play of, you know, this difficult time, but instead to offer up these objects that will play against each other, this limited set of objects that sit on a table and tell you the story. Um, but then I realized that I love you so much. I could die. The, the title song was the fulcrum, the turning point of the play. And I was like, it has to be called that. And it just became really clear to me. Totally. I love yeah. that. It's wonderful stuff. And like Jeff said, we are just about out of time. So I know I could keep talking about this. I was just so, I just loved this. And I think I, and it's, it's playing until a, we have a week or two left of the run. Yeah. Uh, March 9th. March 9th. Okay. So people still have some time to get to it and get downtown yeah. to, it's so fun to get downtown to New York Theater Workshop, see the wonderful things they're putting on down there. It's a great space. And it's just been so wonderful talking to you about it. So we thank you so much for spending some time here with us and sharing your knowledge as a playwright and performer. It means a lot to us. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the insightful questions. This was fun. Yeah, of course. Uh, That is all the time we have for today's episode of Half Hour, everyone. We thank you all so much for listening today. Yes, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Mona. We will share all information on where you can learn more about Mona in the description and where to get tickets to I Love You So Much I Could Die. Yes, we'll put that in the description. People can follow where Mona's journey will take her next in the world of (laughs) Uh, And to all our listeners, if you have suggestions on future episodes, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can connect with us on Instagram and on TikTok at Half Hour Podcast. That's where we're doing all our posting. You can engage with us there. Comment, like, follow. There's so many Broadway and off-Broadway things coming up as well as interviews. So make sure you check us out there. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us today, Mona. Thank you. Yay. And tell Lucas we said hi. I will. (laughs) And we appreciate his work immensely. Uh, so signing off for now, I'm Richie. And I'm Jeff. Saying ta-ta for now. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.